0: The countries of the BRICS bloc, representing Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, are holding their 15th summit in Johannesburg, South Africa, this August. This is widely considered to be one of the most important meetings since the bloc was formed in 2009 as a loose group of developing countries in the Global South, along with Russia, And South Africa was actually added, it was originally BRIC and South Africa was added to the alliance in 2011. And in the past decade, the direction of the BRICS has shifted in a lot of ways. And it's become more and more of a political organization in addition to seeking economic integration and cooperation of developing countries. And in many ways, BRICS today is at a kind of crossroads. There is an intense debate going on inside the bloc about what direction it should go in. Should it be a bloc that is focused on simply seeking economic integration, or should it specifically be the global South's vehicle to challenge the West, the colonial powers represented by the G7? The group of seven represents the imperialist countries that develop their economies through colonialism, That is the United States, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, and also Japan. So it's the Western powers plus Japan. And what we now see is a debate in the BRICS. And China in particular is pushing for the BRICS to be a challenge directly to The hegemony of the G7. Russia also wants BRICS to play more of an activist role, speaking out in defense of sovereignty and independence of these countries, challenging the hegemony of the West. However, on the other side, we've seen reports that India, which has an alliance with the United States and is very friendly with the West, India is very hesitant and it doesn't want the BRICS to be seen as an activist organization representing Global South nationalist movements speaking out against imperialism. Instead, India is trying to balance its relations and maintain very good relations and alliance with the West but also maintain relations with other countries like Russia, which is one of India's most important trading partners and provides it with oil and gas and wheat and fertilizer and military technology. And we've also seen reports that Brazil, which is very afraid that the United States could attack it and impose sanctions on it and try to sponsor another coup, because the United States in 2016 and 2018 supported two political coups d'etat against the workers party government in Brazil. So. Brasilia is is being very careful and is trying not to anger the United States very much. So what we're seeing essentially is this debate going on in BRICS with different leaders, some of them trying to walk on eggshells not to upset the West, whereas China and Russia are saying very clearly, this should be an organization that speaks firmly on behalf of the global South's independence. We are not going to tolerate bullying and the hegemony of the Western imperial powers. This also comes at a very important historical moment in which the Western colonial economies are no longer the biggest economies in the world. China, when you measure its economy at purchasing power parity, which is the best way to measure GDP, China overtook the US economy in 2017 and is the largest economy on earth. And if you take the BRICS countries together, their economies represent nearly one third of global GDP measured at purchasing power parity, around 32%, whereas the G7 economies represent less than 30%. So the the BRICS economies together are now larger than the G7 economies. And of course, the Western economies and the G7 have been very stagnant for years and are not growing significantly whereas the BRICS economies are growing rapidly. So there is a lot of potential in the future for BRICS to become a major economic powerhouse on the global stage. But of course, this is why the divisions within the BRICS are important to understand, because there is a possibility that there could be countries that leave BRICS. We already see some of these divisions emerging. And of course, the Western powers are very much trying to encourage more and more splits. Now, this also comes at a time when the humanitarian organization Oxfam reported that the G7 countries owe the Global South $13 trillion in debt. And when I say $13 trillion from this Oxfam report, that is money that the Western powers and Japan promised the Global South. It's not money that they that they should give the Global South in reparations, which is probably many tens of trillions of dollars more, hundreds of trillions of dollars, considering that the British Empire siphoned out more than $45 trillion just from India over nearly 200 years of colonialism. But I'm not even just talking about the money that the Global South is owed in reparations by the colonial powers. Oxfam estimates that the G7 countries promised the Global South that they would give aid, and support, and in particular, support monetarily to help with climate change policies so these countries can move toward greener technology and energy. And yet the Western powers violated their promises. They lied, and they still have not paid $13 trillion to the nations of the Global South. This is exactly why an organization like the BRICS is so important for these countries in the global South that are seeking new economic and political representation so they can no longer be bullied and controlled by the Western powers that colonize them and still maintain neo-colonial policies. And it's also why there is a deep debate going on inside the BRICS itself about the future direction of the bloc. The BRICS summit in Johannesburg, South Africa began on August 22nd and four of the leaders, the heads of state of the BRICS countries were represented. Now, this was a very important visit by China's president, Xi Jinping, because it is only the second trip that President Xi took in the year 2023. The only other trip that Xi took outside of China in 2023 was to Russia in March. So that really represents China's foreign policy priorities. President Xi has very clearly prioritized increasing its relations with Russia and also deepening China's relations in the BRICS. Brazil's president, Lula da Silva, also traveled to South Africa for the summit, and he announced that, quote, cooperation between the countries of the global South is fundamental in confronting inequalities, the climate crisis, and for a more balanced and fair world. Along with Lula, India's prime minister, Narendra Modi, traveled to South Africa. And of course, South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, is in his country. So he's he attended the summit as well. The only leader who was not able to attend the summit was Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, and that is because the Western powers have been politicizing the International Criminal Court, the ICC, and pressuring countries to imprison, to arrest and imprison President Putin, despite the fact, by the way, that the United States is actually not party to the Rome Statute, So it's actually not part of the International Criminal Court. The United States does not recognize the legitimacy of the ICC. And by the way, Russia and China do not either. And yet the U.S. is trying to pressure the ICC, which is not party to, in order to uh, arrest and imprison President Putin. I have a separate video explaining the incredible hypocrisy. The ICC is currently led by a chief prosecutor who was installed by the Western powers who's extremely biased against the Global South and is very biased in the interest of the Western powers. I will link to that video in the description below. But because Putin didn't want to put South Africa in this delicate diplomatic situation where he was forced to choose and forced to flout the ICC, instead, Russia's foreign minister Sergei Lavrov traveled to Johannesburg for the summit. Now, one of the most important topics of discussion in the BRICS summit this year was the issue of expansion and the, the reports that South Africa and China were in agreement on expansion. According to South Africa, 42 countries have expressed interest in joining BRICS and 22 countries have formally applied to join the bloc. Representatives from 71 countries were invited to participate in the summit. And by the way, France, France's president Emmanuel Macron wanted to attend the summit, but he was actually rejected. He was not invited. So this truly is a bloc trying to represent the global south. Also attending the summit are the leaders of Iran and Indonesia. Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi attended and Iran is trying to join. Iran also this year became a full member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a largely security-focused organization, although it's expanding to focus more on political and economic issues. And other members of the SCO include China, Russia, India, Pakistan, and numerous Central Asian nations. And I did a separate video about Iran joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I will link to that in the description below. Also present at the summit was Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, who is a nationalist and he's been promoting the development of his country. It's often forgotten, but Indonesia is a very significant power. It has the fourth largest population on earth right after the United States and it's growing Economically, it is already the seventh largest economy on earth when you measure Indonesia's economy at purchasing power parity. And that means that it's it's nearing the size of Russia's economy. And Indonesia is also growing very rapidly, largely because of the economic nationalist policies of Widodo who has, for instance, been banning the export of raw materials and instead trying to focus on developing Indonesia's local industry. So Indonesia doesn't simply just export raw materials to the rich imperialist countries. Instead, he wants Indonesia to develop its own industry and add value to the production process so they're not simply a resource colony in this kind of neocolonial system. So what this shows is that there is a lot of interest in the global south, many countries that want to join the BRICS. Now I'm recording this analysis today on the 22nd of August, so it is not clear yet which countries will be admitted as new members, but there are reports that likely contenders include Argentina, Indonesia, potentially Iran, potentially Saudi Arabia, so we'll see what those countries will be. And of course, here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I will always be keeping you all up to date with the latest developments in these new Global South liberation movements against Western neocolonialism. That's what we report on here regularly. But while there is a general agreement among the existing BRICS members that new countries will be allowed to join and the bloc will expand, what those countries will be is actually not clear. And there have been reports that there are major disagreements within the BRICS bloc itself. The Financial Times has reported that China urges the BRICS to become a geopolitical rival to the G7 itself. And according to the Financial Times, which is a British newspaper and the Western media has been trying to encourage divisions within the BRICS because Western governments are trying to divide the BRICS. But At the same time, we have seen reports also from the Indian media, from the Chinese media, from Indian diplomats, suggesting that there are very much internal divisions, especially between China and India. So maybe the Western media is exaggerating a little bit, but they very much are there. And this report provides some insight into what these disagreements are about. According to the Financial Times, New Delhi has clashed with Beijing over the expansion of BRICS. Tensions are mounting over whether the BRICS should be a non aligned club for the economic interests of developing countries or a political force that openly challenges the West. And this is according to anonymous people who know about India's and China's positions. So again, may- maybe they're exaggerating this, but there have been a lot of reports, including from former indian diplomats that india is really trying to embrace its alliance with the west india has a very right-wing pro-western government led by the bjp which is a right-wing hindu nationalist party and they're very anti-china and they have been basically forming an alliance with the united states india's prime minister narendra modi just took a trip to washington where he signed a series of agreements with President Joe Biden. And by the way, India has bipartisan support in the US. In fact, Republicans also love Narendra Modi because he's very right-wing. The ruling government in India is very right-wing. And the Democrats love the Indian government because they wanna use India as an anti-China proxy in the new Cold War. So basically, India is in this position where it has very close relations with the West. India is also part of the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, the Quad, which is essentially the anti-China NATO that the US is trying to use to surround China with antagonistic forces militarily. And we also see that this is part of the larger US so-called Indo-Pacific strategy of surrounding China. And the right-wing leaders of Japan and South Korea just held a very friendly meeting with Biden, promising to deepen their military alliance to counter china and once again the democrats who claim to be progressive have no problem allying with the extremely right-wing leaders of south korea and japan who have been compared to donald trump south korea's president yoon suk Yeol has been repeatedly referred to in the korean media as k trump as korean trump and he's emulating donald trump and you know he's copying many of his policies And in the case of Japan, the country has been governed by the right-wing LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, basically as a one-party state. Ever since the end of World War II, the U.S. has basically had a significant control over Japan. Both countries still have tens of thousands of U.S. troops occupying them. So essentially, what we see is the current government of Fumio Kishida in Japan has continued these very right-wing anti-China policies in alliance with the U.S., and the U.S., is trying to also bring in India, Australia, and the Philippines in this larger so-called Indo-Pacific military strategy to surround China to eventually wage war on China. So it's of course a complicated situation because India is part of BRICS, but, and of course China is the sea in BRICS, but India is also part of numerous alliances with the United States, and it's trying to play both sides. And at the same time, China wants BRICS to be a force that challenges the West. It doesn't want to just play both sides. It wants to actively challenge the West and provide more political and economic space in the, in the world as a leadership role for the global South. It wants the global South to be completely independent from the neo-colonial political influence of the Western powers. And that explains one of the big debates going on. A Chinese official explained to the Financial Times what Beijing's philosophy is. They said, quote, if we expand BRICS to account for a similar portion of world GDP as the G7, then our collective voice in the world will grow stronger. And as I mentioned earlier, the BRICS countries now, their economies together, when you measure their GDP at purchasing power parity, represent a larger share of the global economy than the G7. The G7 countries represent slightly under 30% of the global economy, whereas the BRICS countries represent nearly one-third, 32%. And they continue to grow while the Western economies are stagnant. Now, one of the most important topics of discussion in the BRICS summit this year was the issue of expansion. The other very important point of discussion, of course, involves de-dollarization the drive by many of these countries to diversify the currencies that they use for international trade and that they hold in the foreign exchange reserves in their central banks. Now, I've talked about this a lot in many different videos, so I'll keep it relatively short here summarizing that there have been reports. For instance, the Russian government said that the BRICS is eventually in the future going to work on trying to develop a new currency to challenge the U.S. dollar, but many diplomats, including Russian diplomats, have acknowledged that this is a very complicated and difficult process. So it's not going to be something that happens this year immediately at the BRICS summit. It's going to be something that they work on developing over time. And what they are instead working on right now in the short term is encouraging the use of the currencies of BRICS members, like the, the Chinese renminbi, the Russian ruble, the Indian rupee, the South African rand, the Brazilian real known as the 5Rs because all of their currencies begin with R. The BRICS in the short term is focusing on encouraging the use of local currencies, national currencies in their international trade with different countries. And of course, in the future, the goal will eventually be to create a new reserve currency to challenge the dollar. And also the BRICS's bank arm, the finance arm, the New Development Bank, known as the BRICS Bank, Which is currently led by brazil's former president Dilma Rousseff has also been gradually de-dollarizing pledging to give out roughly one-third of its loans in national currencies of members instead of the dollar so the point is is that de-dollarization is a process that is happening already but the creation of a direct challenge to the dollar is something that is likely going to happen in the medium to the long term Whereas in the short term, the countries are instead focusing on developing economic infrastructure, financial infrastructure, payment mechanisms, interbank messaging systems and such that use local national currencies instead of just the dollar. And of course, that is just one of several topics being discussed at the BRICS Summit in Johannesburg this August. Now, finally, to conclude here, I want to point out that When China is calling for the BRICS to be a challenge to the G7, I think a lot of countries in the Global South would be very sympathetic to that because the reality is that the G7 is represented by these countries that colonize the Global South and still today refuse to give them trillions of dollars that they are owed. The humanitarian organization Oxfam published a report about this back in May during the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. And it's titled G7 owes huge $13 trillion debt to the Global South. I just want to read parts of this report because it's really an incredible statement. It notes that wealthy group of seven countries owe low and middle income countries $13.3 trillion in unpaid aid and funding for climate action. Despite failing to pay what they owe, G7 countries and their rich bankers are demanding that Global South countries pay $232 million a day in debt repayments throughout 2028. This money that is being spent on debt that poor countries are giving to rich countries instead could be spent on healthcare, education, gender equality, and social protection, as well as addressing the impacts of climate change. And then the the executive director of Oxfam said, "Quote." Wealthy G7 countries like to cast themselves as saviors, but what they are is operating a deadly double standard. They play by one set of rules while their former colonies are forced to play by another. It's do as I say, not as I do. This is something I talk about a lot here Geopolitical Economy Report. The Western powers, in particular the United States, are trying to replace international law with the so-called rules-based international order in which Washington makes the rules and orders everyone around. And constantly, the Western powers are telling the Global South to abide by a certain set of rules, while they themselves abide by a completely different set of rules that they create. And whenever it suits them, they simply move the goalposts. So here we see a humanitarian organization, Oxfam, which is not a political group, it's not a political party. They acknowledge the fact that the Western colonial powers are still maintaining these neo-colonial policies today siphoning out wealth, sucking wealth out of the Global South, and yet refusing to give the Global South, not even reparations. We're not talking about reparations, which would be in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. The, the rich imperialist countries refuse to give the Global South the money that they legally owe them, that they have politically stated that they would give them, and they refuse to do so. Oxfam points out, quote, it's the rich world that owes the Global South. The aid they promised decades ago, but never gave. I want to repeat that. This is aid that they promised. Not aid that they should give. It's the aid that they promised. The huge costs from the climate change caused by their reckless burning of fossil fuels. The immense wealth built on colonialism and slavery. And when we're talking about the reparations due from colonialism and slavery, $13 trillion is not even close. Just in India alone... The Indian economist Utsab Patnaik estimated that the British Empire sucked out at least $45 trillion of wealth. That is a conservative estimate. And by the way, that wealth that was siphoned out of the colonies was then used, that capital was used to industrialize the settler colon- colonies of the British Empire, like the United States, like Canada, like Australia. It was that capital was also used to industrialize other parts of Western Europe. So the advanced capitalist countries in the West, they quite literally developed their economies through the stolen wealth from the global South, through colonialism and slavery. Their entire economies were based on this, the theft of that wealth. So the $13 trillion is, mark is just a tiny drop in a massive bucket that they owe. But once again, this is the money that the Western powers promised they would give and they never have given. Oxfam points out, quote, "Each and every day, the global South pays hundreds of millions of dollars to the G7 and their rich bankers. This has to stop. It's time to call the G7's hypocrisy for what it is, an attempt to dodge responsibility and maintain the neo-colonial status quo." And Oxfam pointed out that today, billions of workers around the world, in the global south in particular, are facing real-term pay cuts because of the rising inflation and impossible rises in the prices of basics like food. Global hunger has risen for a fifth consecutive year, while extreme wealth and extreme poverty have increased simultaneously for the first time in 25 years the G7 owes low- and middle-income countries $8.7 trillion for the devastating losses and damages their excessive carbon emissions have caused, especially in the global south. Moreover, G7 governments are also collectively failing to meet a long-standing promise by rich countries to provide $100 billion per year from 2020 until 2025 to help poorer countries cope with climate change. In 1970, rich countries agreed to provide 0.7% of their gross national income in aid. Since then, G7 countries left unpaid a total of $4.45 trillion to the world's poorest countries, more than half what they promised. And Oxfam pointed out, they stressed, this is not about benevolence or charity. It is a moral, obligation. This is why organizations like BRICS are so important and it's why the debate going on in BRICS is also significant because it's going to determine the direction that the BRICS goes in in the future. Now I'm recording this on the 22nd of August, the first day of the BRICS summit, so I'm going to conclude here and I will come back soon with more analysis of the latest developments going on in BRICS in the agreements that are made, in the countries that are added, but I wanted to provide the context today for the debate that's going on and why the BRICS is an important organization and can be even more important in the years to come. With that, I'm going to conclude here. I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. Please subscribe on whatever platform you are watching or listening on. All of our videos are also available as a podcast version. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. And if you want to support the work that we do here, you can go to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support. And there are several ways you can donate to us. The best way is you can go to patreon.com geopoliticaleconomy and become a patron. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners like you. We do not have any institutional support. We do not have any big corporate sponsors or anything like that. So I want to thank everyone if you consider supporting us in any way. I also want to thank everyone who watched or listened and who joined me to the end here. I am Ben Norton from Geopolitical Economy Report. I'll see you next time.